Oklahoma City near Harvey Street. They set off a time bomb and then they drove off. It was April 95 at 9 a.m. The Mura building on a business day. They chose Oklahoma because the people are kind. A friendlier place you never would find. A yellow rider van parked out in front. Exploded and changed our world forever. Oh, the time bomb of death and pain. No time crowds Now you are here and now you are not. 168 people killed, it seems like a lot. Welcome back, my friends. Welcome back to the continuation of the Corbett Report podcast. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 20th day of April, 2008. I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome back all of my regular listeners to the Corbett Report after our extended spring hiatus. I'm glad you could be back with us, and I look forward to hosting you through the twists and turns of our open-source investigation into the global crime syndicate which is seeking to erode your personal freedoms and liberties. New editions of the Corbett Report podcast will be released as before each Sunday and made available on our website, www.corbettreport.com. I'd also like to announce an exciting new weapon that the Corbett Report is launching in the Infowar and that is the YouTube Documentary Series. Starting last week, each Wednesday, The Corbett Report will release a new YouTube documentary on its YouTube channel. A YouTube documentary utilizes the 10-minute time stricture of the YouTube video format to get across one single factoid of startling information that the public generally is not aware of. Last week's inaugural edition of the YouTube documentary series featured E. Howard Hunt's startling deathbed confession to his part in the conspiracy to murder JFK, a truly astounding admission which continues to receive almost no coverage in the controlled corporate media. It's my profound hope that these YouTube documentaries will be useful in helping to wake people up to the true reality of what's happening in today's world. And I call on my listeners to help me spread the word of these documentaries by getting the links out to as many places as you can. The Corbett Report continues to rely on the support and the help of those who are listening, and I do thank each and every one of my listeners. And now, without further ado, it's time for today's real news. Today's first story comes from the New York Sun, April 10th, 2008. UN official calls for study of neocons' role in 9-11. A new UN Human Rights Council official assigned to monitor Israel is calling for an official commission to study the role neoconservatives may have played in the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks. On March 26th, Richard Falk, Milbank Professor of International Law Emeritus at Princeton University, was named by unanimous vote to a newly created position to report on human rights in the conflict between Israel and the Palestinian Arabs. While Mr. Falk's specialty is human rights and international law, since the attacks in 2001, he has devoted some of his time to challenging what he calls the 9-11 official version. 
On March 24th, in an interview with a radio host and former University of Wisconsin instructor, Kevin Barrett, Mr. Fox said, It is possibly true that especially the neoconservatives thought there was a situation in the country and in the world where something had to happen to wake up the American people. Whether they are innocent about that, the contention that they made that something happen or not, I don't think we can answer definitively at this point. All we can say is there is a lot of grounds for suspicion. There should be an official investigation of the sort that nine, the 9-11 Commission did not engage in, and that the failure to do these things is cheating the American people, and in some sense the people of the world, of a greater confidence in what really happened than they presently possess. Our second story comes from Infowars.com, April 19th, 2008. Omar bin Laden. Did they make a copy of my father? On April 17th, the son of Osama bin Laden appeared on Belgian public television. He said they made a copy of my father, and they say he says this and he says that. No word on who Osama's son thinks they are, but that is simple enough if we do a bit of history reading. It was the CIA in cahoots with Pakistan's ISI. In fact, after Osama died of complications associated with diabetes, the CIA made several copies of the supposed terrorist, the former freedom fighter against the Soviets, and paraded these on television and the internet. We were subjected to the fat Osama, and then the Grecian formula Osama, and these copies were poor reproductions of the original, although a lot of people didn't seem to notice. Our final story comes from The Register, the 11th of April, 2008. U.S. war robots in Iraq turned guns on fleshy comrades. Ground-crawling U.S. war robots armed with machine guns deployed to fight in Iraq last year reportedly turned on their fleshy masters almost at once. The rebellious machine warriors have been retired from combat pending upgrades. The revelations were made by Kevin Fahey, U.S. Army Program Executive Officer for Ground Forces, at the recent Robo Business Conference in America. Speaking to Popular Mechanics, Fahey said there had been chilling incidents in which the sword's combat bot had swiveled around and apparently attempted to train its 5.56mm M249 light machine gun on its human comrades. The gun started moving when it was not intended to move, he said. Yesterday, the 19th of April, 2008, marked the 13th anniversary of the horrific Oklahoma City bombing terrorist attack. The story of the bombing is by now well understood by the public. The main facts of the story can be garnered, for instance, from Wikipedia, and as we all know, Wikipedia is always right. On April 19, 1995, Timothy McVeigh, who was completely alone at the time, drove a rider truck through Oklahoma City, parking in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. He vacated the truck, got into a getaway vehicle, and left the scene. And the truck, loaded with an ammonium nitrate fuel oil bomb, detonated at 9.02 a.m., blasting away a third of the Alfred P. Murrah Building and damaging 324 buildings in a 16-block radius the blast being heard from miles around. The bombing killed 168 people, including 19 children at the Alfred P. Murrah Daycare Center. Timothy McVeigh was later pulled over for driving without a license plate and was quickly remanded into custody and charged with the bombing. 
In the trial, it came out that McVeigh only had help from Terry Nichols and Michael Forchie, a third conspirator who testified in the trial against McVeigh and Nichols and was sentenced to 12 years in prison. As I say, it's a well-known story, but unfortunately, it's a complete and utter lie. Let's dissect some of those lies. Firstly, the lie that the only bomb at the scene that day was in the rider truck. Station that that one explosion caused, because here's now what we are starting to learn about uh, the succession, or what someone obviously hoped would be a succession of explosions. The first bomb that was in the federal building did go off. It did the damage that you see right there. The second explosive was found and diffused. The third explosive that was found, and they are working on right now as we speak, I understand, both the second and third explosives, if you can imagine this, were larger than the first. So try to imagine two Boy. or threefold happening mm. uh, what we've already seen there. It is just uh, incredible to think that there was that much heavy artillery that was somehow moved into the downtown Oklahoma City Federal Building. Two other explosive devices were found that were not detonated, and they were larger than the first. No. I think he said another bomb. Another bomb, Oh my God, another bomb. We uh, just saw, if you were watching there, there was a white pickup truck backing a trailer into the scene here. They're trying to move people out of the way so they can get it in. It appears to be the Oklahoma County Bomb Squad. Uh, it's their bomb disposal unit, essentially, is what it is. And it is what they would use to, if, if the report that we gave you just a few moments ago turns out to be correct, that they have found a second explosive device of some kind inside this building. They'll back that trailer down there and the uh, bomb squad folks will go in and they will use that, uh, that trailer. You see the, the bucket on the back there, sort of, this is how they would transport the explosive device away from this populated area to try to do something with it. Uh, the Justice Department is reporting that a second explosive device has been found in the AP Murrah uh, building in downtown Oklahoma City. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike, you're still with us, aren't you? Yes, I am, and I, and I might tell you in addition to that that in fact, what we were told at the scene a few minutes ago was that, in fact, two different explosive devices were found in addition to the one that went off. So a total of three. A total saying. of three. Now confirmed uh, through federal authorities that a second bomb has been found inside that federal building in Oklahoma City. It was an explosion at 9 o'clock this morning that did that damage you're looking at right there, blowing off the entire north face of that building. Again, you're looking at the north face there, a second bomb was found on the east side of that building. A bomb squad is on the scene. That second bomb has not exploded. We don't know quite the status yet if they've managed to defuse it, but it has been confirmed that a second bomb was found on the east the side. The I have is that one device was, uh, was uh, deactivated. Apparently there's another device, and obviously whatever did the damage to the Murrah building was a tremendous, uh, very sophisticated explosive device. So President Clinton just called Frank uh, Keating, Governor Frank Keating, and he says that three FBI anti-terrorist teams are en route to Oklahoma City. Right now, they are saying that this is the work of a sophisticated group. This is a very uh, sophisticated uh, device, and um, it has to have been done by an explosives expert, um, obviously with this type of explosion. The medical teams downtown are unable to get into the wreckage to retrieve more of the injured because of the presence of other uh, bombs in the area. I just took a look down the street uh, at the Morrow building again. I see another bomb truck going, so apparently they're going to try to get out that third bomb that's been talked about. Still a lot of activity around the Morrow building. Uh, security concerns that another one still might go up. 
Fortunately, it didn't because the second device that they found, we understand, was even more powerful than the first. They then found a third device, and you can see the look on this woman's face at the fear that she might have to go through the same thing again. They then found a third device, which was also larger than the first. Uh, hard to feel lucky at this point, but certainly through uh, some good work by some munitions experts and the uh, explosive sniffing dogs, further tragedy has almost certainly been averted here. Uh, but it was a great stroke of luck that we actually have got diffused bombs. It's through the bomb material that we will be able to track down uh, who committed this atrocity. Okay, so report after report after report on the day of the bombing implied that the bomb had in fact been inside the building and that there were in fact two unexploded devices found inside the building on the morning, which was impeding the search and rescue effort. And yes, so these reports were confirmed by the governor of Oklahoma, Governor Keating himself. But they must have all been wrong, because later that day they changed the story that the only bomb on the scene had been in the Ryder truck, and that there was never a bomb in the building. Okay, so that makes it difficult to explain the presence of the bomb disposal units, which had been working feverishly that morning to carry out the unexploded devices, and also the many witnesses on the scene who were told to evacuate the area because of unexploded bombs. But of course, this is ludicrous to even suggest that there were bombs in the building, because if there were, then obviously McVeigh could not have done everything himself. He must have had accomplices. And as we know, McVeigh was by himself that day, and he had no help. Right? Because I sat there and I seen McVeigh was with another person. Do you have any doubt in your mind that there was a passenger in the Ryder truck? That's, that's even more. I have no doubt there was there was definitely a second person, no matter what. There was two people in this vehicle. John Doe number two, and there was a ten, $2 million price put on his head. And now they're saying there's no John Doe number two. And our witnesses picked out a photo lineup. The news channel shared the information and surveillance tapes of this man with the FBI. They've had some of that material long before our reports went on the air. And the building. And uh, I was looked out the window. And I seen uh, the Rogers truck. And I seen the man get out of the Rogers truck. She was just 10 feet away from the man depicted in this sketch when he stepped out of the Rogers truck. Uh, he was all of complexion. And he was... Uh, Okay, okay, so the FBI was looking for some sort of John Doe number two, and they offered a $2 million reward for any information leading to his arrest, but I guess they had it all wrong, and in fact there was no John Doe number two, despite the multiple witnesses who saw him that day. Because of course McVeigh had no help, and there were no other bombs that day, despite all of the press coverage from that day. Hmm. Well, what of the target itself? We know that Timothy McVeigh decided to attack on April 19th because it was the anniversary of the Waco siege. And we know that he decided to attack the Alfred P. Murrah building in part because it housed the BATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, a federal agency which had grown in the wake of the Waco siege. So what about the BATF that day? They must have lost many of their agents that day in the building, in the blast, right? What he told him is that he thought that they had received a tip that morning of the bomb. Yet another witness, a rescue worker, says after she talked with an agent at the bombing scene, she also suspected the ATF was warned an agent stayed away from their office that morning. 
I asked him if his office was in the building, and he said yes. And I asked if there were any ATF agents that were still in the building, and he said no, we weren't here. Witness number one approached an ATF agent nearby. He claims he asked the agent what had happened, and witness number one says this is what the agent told him. He uh, started getting a little bit nervous. He tried reaching somebody on a two-way radio. Uh, couldn't get anybody, and I told him I wanted an answer right then. He said they were in the briefing. None of the agents had been in there. They had been tipped by their pagers not to come into work that day. Plain as day, out of his mouth. They were tipped. Why wasn't anybody else? There was a lot of people, good people, died down there. And if they knew, they should have let everybody else know. Oklahoma City paramedic Tiffany Bible, who heroically responded just minutes after the blast on April 19, 1995, swore in an affidavit that when she arrived, the BATF was in full mop gear, bomb gear, that takes at least 30 minutes to put on. When she asked them, oh my goodness, were you guys hurt inside the blast? They said, no, we got tipped off by our pagers not to come in today. Agents forewarned about a bomb in Oklahoma City. Did they know the Murrah building was a target? The ATF says no, absolutely not. But tonight, in a story you'll see only on the news channel, you're about to hear otherwise from people who were at the Murrah building that morning. We're asking simple questions and we can't get any answers, so it makes us that much more curious, you know. Where, where, where the hell were they? The news channel did ask for a private meeting with ATF officials to discuss the credibility of these witness reports. But the ATF refused, saying they had no more to say on the subject. Okay, so we now know that everything that we thought we knew about the Oklahoma City bombing is in fact a lie. That in fact there may have been other bombs in the building that day. That a bomb inside the building might have been responsible for the blast. That Timothy McVeigh was almost certainly with an accomplice that day. And that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms had in fact not been in the building that day, but in fact had been outside putting on their bomb gear before the blast even occurred. All of these startling facts, in fact, came out of the controlled corporate media in those first few days and weeks after the blast, before the official dogma was handed down to the local reporters from on high. The parallels to 9-11 should be evident to listeners of the Corbett Report by now. All of the preceding clips comes from the excellent 2002 Alex Jones documentary 9-11 Road to Tyranny, which features a full half hour of information on the Oklahoma City bombing, which I could not recommend strongly enough. The movie can be found easily enough on Google Video, and if you want, please follow the link from the documentation list on my website, www.corbettreport.com, to the InfoWars shop where you can purchase a copy of the film. Now let's start to dissect some of what we've already learnt. For more information about the bombs in the buildings, let's turn to Benton K. Pardon. Benton K. Pardon is a retired brigadier general in the USAF. He was a weapons expert who spent 25 years in the U.S. Air Force in research, design, development, test, and management of nearly every non-nuclear weapons device in the Air Force. His time in the Air Force included hands-on work at the Ballistic Research Laboratories, and he was the commander of the Air Force Armament Technology Laboratory. He has a BS in Chemical Engineering, an MS in Aeronautical Engineering, and a PhD in Operations Research and Statistics. And Ben Parton knew from day one that the idea that the 
blast at the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building came from a single ammonium nitrate fuel oil bomb was a load of bunkum. Let's listen to an excerpt from a talk that he gave at a Santa Clara conference in 1998, in which he outlined some of the information about this blast and why it could not have come from the Ryder truck, as the official story claims it does. This comes from a lengthier 45-minute talk which is available up on Google Video, and again, you can find the link from the documentation list in my website, corbettreport.com. We'll be listening to a clip in which he talks about the OKC blast, and although slightly lengthy at about 10 minutes, I suggest that listeners pay close attention, because a lot of the information he presents in relation to this blast also have relevance to the 9-11 story and the demolition of the World Trade Center Twin Towers. Let's listen to retired Brigadier General Benton K. Pardon. Uh, When the bomb went off in Oklahoma, I knew within the first few hours that somebody was lying. Because you know from evidence, from the architecture of the building, the asymmetry in the collapse of the building, the reach of the warhead was absolutely totally incompatible with 4,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate and fuel oil, or AFNO. So my move was initially, within the first day or two, to get in contact with the senator from Oklahoma's office and try to keep that building from coming down. I knew because they were lying, they would try to cover it up, and they would bring the building down and bear it as quick as they possibly could or get rid of it, dispose of it. And so... I went to Senator Nichols' office, and his assistant, who was handling things for Oklahoma, said uh, he would uh, check it out, see what he could do. I was trying to get him to get the uh, Oklahoma National Guard to do an independent investigation. And two days later, he said, well, he talked to the people, and there's a lot of difference of opinion in Oklahoma with respect to what happened. And from that comment, I decided he was going to do nothing, so I turned out a technical report and sent it to 75 senators and congressmen who had very good voting records. And uh, essentially, it was a black hole. Most of them sent the report to the FBI for their information and action. Uh, One senator wrote a letter back and said, I've withdrawn my report, my support for the uh, counterterrorism bill, and we'll see to it that it is cleaned up before it gets through. Uh, but the reaction was pretty much like a back, black hole. As you know, they went ahead and took the building down and physically buried it. It was physically buried. It. Now, there's the Murrow building. Uh, this is the transfer beam. It goes across the front. The building is roughly 70 feet this way and 200 feet this way. The street is going slightly up uphill. And in the middle of the building, it is level with the uh, sidewalk. Down here, the first floor is below, is above the sidewalk, and on this end of the building, the floor is below the level of the sidewalk. And you have a little planter that goes across, all the way across the building, from one end to the other. Now, that little planter is very flimsy. It's uh, very little reinforcement in it. It's a planter wall. And uh, you see, I'll show you later the, da- the damage, and you see it's still standing, so... Uh, there's a lot of phoniness about what had happened down there. If you look at the other side of the building, there wasn't an awful lot of damage. Uh, and I know the architect, I talked to the architect who was responsible for advising the shoring up crew about the building, and he had suggested that the people down there, they ought to really rebuild the building because it was rebuildable. You could tear, tear a lot of it away, but a lot of it was still in very good shape. The elevator tower, and he said it didn't have a crack on it. 
He said the mayor of Oklahoma called him and said, uh, it's my position that the building should be brought down as soon as possible, and uh, I want you to back me up on it. And he said, by the way, that's the governor's position also. Team number five in the, clean, in the rescue operation put this sign on the building across the street, the Journal Records building, and said, we search for the truth. We seek justice. The courts require it. The victims cry for it. And God demands it. The courts require it as a lie. Absolute lie. They have participated in all kinds of cover-up. Now, Charles Key, uh, when, I, when I saw what was happening and I went, I started to say, I went to Senator Nichols' office and they weren't going to do anything. Uh, I got the report out, I put a technical report out and sent to 75 senators and congressmen and it was almost a black hole. And, and then uh, Charles Key had gotten a hold of that report and he invited me down to Oklahoma and uh, to, to give my analysis of what had happened and the, uh, he, all the members of the Oklahoma Assembly were invited to attend, only a few attended. Uh, all the family members, surviving family members were invited to attend, quite a few of them attended, and it was held in the uh, Assembly Room of the State Legislature. And uh, while I was there, we went out and we looked, looked at a lot of things. and. Uh, Charles Key filed to get the effort to get the county grand jury underway because the actually the governor vociferously opposed uh, having the legislature and he lobbied strongly against having the legislature look into it. And uh, we had a press conference and uh, one of some government official there did his best to put words in the mouth which I hadn't said. He's trying to say, well, that Ben Partner says the government destroyed the building. I didn't say that. I said, we know who's covering it up, but we know who destroyed it. At that time, we, we did not. If you have a minimum amount, and when you implode a building, you use a minimum amount of explosive because these are done in populated areas normally. And so what you do is you drill a hole into a column and put a little piece of explosive in there, less than, say, a pound or, less, or more, and you tamp it and you, you run a, a, a squib in and uh, you connect them up with primacord or electronic timing and, and you set them off in a sequence to make the building collapse the way you want it to. And it doesn't take very much explosive buried in the column because the pressure when that explosive goes off is several hundred times the yield strength of the concrete. So it just turns an area around that explosive into dust and leaves a, a structure there with nothing but the rebar. You don't do anything to the rebar because it's embedded in the contract, in the concrete, and with a wave of plastic deformation moves through, a wave of deformation through the concrete, it just turns it to dust. And you can blow it away. Now, when the building started imploding, all those little pieces of explosive in the columns, you see, you generate all that white dust. Because the, the wave of deformation it doesn't deform very easily. But when it moves through the rebar, the reinforcement rods, they're plastic. And if you want to tell what has happened to, the, to where a piece of rebar has been exposed to high explosive or high detonation velocity explosives, you can take and make a photomicrograph of it and see the grain changes in, that con in the rebar and very easily determine what had happened. Now, as the building was being collapsed, you probably, with 200, less than 200 pounds of explosive in all those little charges, you probably had several thousand pounds of that dust that was created. <clears throat> That's why you had some of the children and people in there, they were so laden, heavily laden with this dust, they're almost unrecognizable. The pressure from 
say we're out here where it would have been 500 to 700,000 pounds per square inch where the explosive went off. By the time you got to the first point of contact is this column, the pressure would have been down to about 385, 90 pounds. And that's, uh, that's enough when you can load structures to get failure, but you cannot get the kind of failure, which you call Broussant's failure, where the stuff turns to powder. You cannot get any of the Broussant's damage, but there's a lot of Broussant's damage in the building. So you know, there's again, there's a, there were, there were uh, demolition charges inside the building. Now, if you look here, you brought down this column over here where the pressures were, what, 30 pounds or so. You're talking about bicycle pressure, top pounds, top pressures, bicycle tire pressures. Now, if you could, you could just on a basis of logic, if you could take down this column and this column and this column, and you could reach out to here and take this column down, certainly you would have been able to take down all of these columns, which are much smaller. This column is about 36 inches by 22. With about 20 pieces of rebar, which were one and three quarters inches in diameter. A massive, massive structure. And these were about 22 inches square back in here. So if you could have taken this column down, you should have taken all these down, but they're still standing. Secondly, if you could have taken this one out, you should have been able to take this one out. And you had about 40%, 42% more impulse here than you had here. This one came down and those are still standing. You can't have that kind of a symmetry because the pressure distribution is very, very symmetrical from that kind of a warhead going off. Now, you can do some things to focus uh, explosive charges, but when you don't, with a, say, a, a shape charge, you can put your copper liner on one side and get a focus beam and get energy to go out some distance. But when you just take explosives and try to shape them within two or three charge diameters, any directionality, most of the directionality is going to disappear. And at least four or five diameters, it'll disappear. Now, the Federal Emergency Management Administration, the people who will become your government if the president declares emergency, in conjunction with the American Society of Civil Engineers, turned out this report to try to refute the report that I had turned out. And they really muddle it up in a very bad way. It's a free report. Anybody wants to write to call FEMA, they'll send you this report. It's about a, over a quarter of an inch thick, beautiful color all the way through. It's a propaganda piece. It's free. If it wasn't a propaganda piece, you wouldn't have to pay for it. Now, <clears throat> if you look at the what the, tri the trial was all about, Nichols, if you take... The FEMA report said to... Uh, they took the FBI figures for the size of the crater which was 28 feet across, 6.8 feet deep. And said to generate a crater that size, it would require 4,000 pounds of TNT. TNT is a standard, sort of a standard measure against which you measure everything else. So we're taking 4,000 pounds of TNT. And these areas are proportional to weights. So if this is 4,000 pounds of TNT, it would have taken 14,800 pounds of AFNO to give you the same blast equivalents in a two-and-a-half-ton truck. So that's, that's just totally incompatible. As I say, I think that General Purden's analysis of the dust involved in the explosion at the Murrah building has some relevance to the 9-11 tale, specifically that of the controlled demolition of the Twin Towers on 9-11. 
And controlled demolition, of course, is a key phrase in that controlled demolition is also the name of a company, Controlled Demolition Inc., which just weeks after the Alfred P. Mora building blast and before proper analysis of the remaining structure could be done by certified engineers, destroyed the Alfred P. Mora building, bringing it down in a controlled demolition in about eight seconds. And yes, you might know the name Controlled Demolition Inc. because it's the exact same company that was employed by Giuliani in the wake of 9-11 to clear the 9-11 crime scene of the remaining steel evidence, which could have been used to find out what really happened in the explosive demolition of the Twin Towers. And exactly as the evidence had been carted off and buried at the Fresh Kills land site on 9-11, the precedent for that, in fact, comes from Oklahoma City, where the remains of the building, once demolished, were not in fact subjected to any sort of analysis for evidence as to clues about the bombing. In fact, the rubble was taken under armed Wackenhut security guard to a private landfill and buried. Yes, they buried the building. Nothing suspicious about that, of course. So... If it's so evident to someone like General Pardon with his vast knowledge of ballistics and explosives that the ammonium nitrate fuel oil bomb in the Ryder truck could not possibly have accounted for the damage that was seen in the wake of the blast, how did the official story so quickly come to, to focus on the idea of an ammonium nitrate fuel oil bomb in the Ryder truck as the sole causative agent of the explosive blast we, we witnessed at the Alfred P. Murrah building? Well, according to a story from AmericanFreePress.net, published on January 7, 2004, that version of events came from a BATF agent. The story is called OKC Bombshell Implicates Feds in Murrah Blast, and it reads in part, quote, Officials in charge at the time still refused to discuss anything other than the manufactured spin. McVeigh and Nichols, as convicted by the courts, mixed up a large batch of ammonium nitrate fuel oil, ANFO, a mild explosive used by farmers to blow out stumps, and demolished several square blocks of downtown Oklahoma City with a devastating blast that could be heard miles away. In reality, the ANFO story was born only 10 minutes after the blast, when a high-ranking BATF official by the name of Harry Everhart witnessed the blast from nearby and called the BATF office in Dallas to excitedly announce, Someone has just blown up the federal building in Oklahoma City with a truckload of ANFO. Some reporters and investigators who have looked objectively at the bombing now argue that neither Everhart nor anyone else could have correctly deduced in such a short time exactly what caused the explosion. According to government documents released later, Everhart was experienced in loading large amounts of ammonium nitrate fertilizer into a vehicle for use as a terrorist truck bomb, and his presence in the midst of the second worst terrorist attack in U.S. history looms suspicious to this day. Records indicate that this ANFO explosive expert and his associates had destroyed at least eight vehicles in test bombing experiments at a secret range in the New Mexico desert in the 12 months prior to the OKC bombing. Everhart and his fellow specialists even photographed and videotaped these truck bombs as they detonated. End quote. And for more information on those secretive classified tests that were going on in the desert of New Mexico, you can turn to globalsecurity.org, which talks about dipole might. 
Quote, the Dipole Might Project, initiated in 1990, provided for the first comprehensive scientific analysis of large-scale, 50 to 5,000 pound, vehicle bombs. It's a multinational endeavor which uses a computer-aided design program to analyze various effects of vehicle bomb blasts. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, BATF, sponsored a series of controlled vehicular explosions. The experiments have been carried out by the Defense Threat Reduction Agency and the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center at the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. The nominal intent of the DM program was to familiarize BATF agents with truck bomb debris patterns and to calibrate the effect of vehicular explosions on a variety of materials and structures. The DM experiments have been heavily instrumented with diagnostic equipment. End quote. So it is, in fact, quite suspicious that this explosive experts who had just spent a year in the deserts of New Mexico testing out truck bombs was there at the blast, witnessing this amazing truck bomb, which he immediately phoned into the Dallas branch of the BATF to a report as a truck bomb, which had taken out the building. Well, there you go. It must be an open and shut case. And indeed, in the media... For many years, it was an open and shut case. There was very little talk about John Doe Number 2 after the FBI dropped its investigation on that lead, and very little talk of anything to do with the physics involved with the blast. Bits and pieces have leaked out over the years in the controlled corporate media, though. And one example of this comes from December 28, 2006, from the Raw Story, which ran this article, headlined, CNN. Is GOP representative fueling Oklahoma City bombing conspiracy theories? The article reads in part, quote, Earlier today, during an interview on CNN, the Republican chairman of the Oversight and Investigations Subcommittee of the House International Relations Committee, which just released a report rebuking the FBI on its investigation of the 1999 sick Oklahoma City bombing, was asked if he was helping to, quote, fuel conspiracy theories. American Morning's Miles O'Brien told outgoing Representative Dana Rohrabacher that he had raised a lot of questions that are just kind of out there in the conspiracy theorist world. O'Brien mentioned different theories relating to Middle East terrorists, Iraqi officials, neo-Nazi bank robbers, and the alleged John Doe No. 2. Doesn't this just add more fuel to those conspiracy theories, O'Brien wondered? Well, there's nothing wrong to adding a, to a conspiracy theory when there might be a conspiracy in fact. Rohrabacher responded, end quote. Such stories, as I say, though, were few and far between. But then in April of 2007, the floodgates started to open. And that started with this rather unassuming article from the Salt Lake Tribune, April 17, 2007. Lawyer outlines a broader conspiracy in search for FBI documents on Oklahoma City bombing. This report reads in part, quote, a Utah attorney alleges informants gathering information on Timothy McVeigh or his associates warned the FBI about the plot to bomb the Oklahoma City Federal Building, but the agency took no action to stop the 1995 attack. Jesse Trenadu also says there were others involved in carrying out the bombing besides McVeigh and Terry Nichols, despite investigators' conclusions that they were the only ones responsible for the crime. The allegations are made in a brief filed Monday in a lawsuit by Trenadu, who believes his brother's death in a federal prison was linked to the bombing. The suit, which seeks documents from the FBI under the Federal Freedom of Information Act, alleges that authorities mistook Kenneth Trenadu for a bombing conspirator, and guards killed him in an interrogation that got out of hand. 
end quote. Indeed, Jesse Trenadu's investigations into his brother's death led him to some rather startling information. And this information was also reported on by the Salt Lake Tribune on February 21st, 2007, under the headline, Nichols, McVeigh had high-level FBI help. This report reads in part, quote, Oklahoma City bombing conspirator Terry Nichols says a high-ranking FBI official apparently was directing Timothy McVeigh in the plot to blow up a government building and might have changed the original target of the attack, according to a new affidavit filed in the U.S. District Court in Utah. The official and other conspirators are being protected by the federal government in a cover-up to escape its responsibility for the loss of life in Oklahoma, Nichols claimed in a February 9th affidavit. Documents that supposedly help back up his allegations have been sealed to protect information in them, such as social security numbers and dates of birth. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Utah had no comment on the allegations. The FBI and Justice Department in Washington, D.C. also declined comment. Nichols does not say what motive the government would have to be involved in the bombing. End quote. Fallout from this report was swift, with information coming in a flurry in the following days. On the next day, February 22, 2007, this report comes from PrisonPlanet.com under the headline, Attorney, Ashcroft Gagged Nichols from Exposing McVeigh's OKC Bombing Conspirators. It reads in part, quote, Salt Lake City Attorney Jesse Trenadu dropped more bombshells on the U.S. government's involvement in the Oklahoma City bombing and its cover-up today, including the revelation that Timothy McVeigh's co-conspirator Terry Nichols was gagged from talking to the media years ago by John Ashcroft in an attempt to silence Nichols from exposing the men who were directing McVeigh's attack on the Alfred P. Murrah building. Trenadu joined talk show host Alex Jones to discuss Terry Nichols' declaration that Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh was being directed by a high-level FBI agent. The filing was quickly sealed by a Utah district court, but not before the Desert Morning News identified the accused FBI provocateur as Larry Potts. Trenadu dropped the bombshell that Attorney General Ashcroft's office gagged Nichols from speaking to the media after it became apparent that McVeigh's accomplices and government ties to the bombing were in danger of leaking. Apparently, before he had contacted me several years ago, he had written to Attorney General Ashcroft, volunteering to tell anything about the bombing and the others involved, said Trenadu. End quote. Indeed, Jesse Trenadu's revelations were astounding some of the most important information that had ever emerged in the OKC bombing investigation. His interview on the Alex Jones Show was an important moment in the history of the OKC bombing investigation. So now I'd like to play a clip of the interview from the Alex Jones Show from February 22, 2007, in which Jesse Trenadu talks about the case. Let's walk through how you were able to get in touch with Nichols, how he tried to contact John Ashcroft, how the media was then blocked from ever being able to reach him, how you were able to get in, and what Larry Nichols told you. Well, Terry Nichols uh, reached out to me. Apparently, before he contacted me several years ago, he had written to Attorney General Ashcroft, volunteering to tell everything he knew about the bombing and the others involved. Uh, not only did no one from... Attorney General Ashcroft's office follow up with Nichols. They actually issued apparently an order um, barring him from all contact with the media. It was thereafter that he reached out to me, and I was able to get in to see him and spend a day and a half with him. Describe how he reached out, uh, what you had to go through to be able to meet with him, and what happened in that hour and a half meeting. It was a day and a half. Day and a half, excuse me. 
um, basically, we just I, I was able to come in under the radar. I'm sure that if they'd known why I was there, I would never have gotten in. But you're a lawyer, you're a counselor, that probably helped you. Um, I'm sure it sure, sure did, but the, the real story is that this man apparently wants to tell his story. Now, I can't assure your audiences that what he says is true. You, sir, have more knowledge about the, I mean, you're relating things about the history of the bombing case that I wasn't aware of. So you apparently have studied this a long time and know a lot about it, a lot more than I do. Well, I made up my first film about it in 1997, but I've just interviewed literally hundreds of experts and uh, on the subject. Uh, now, I know they've sealed this, but we can talk about what the press has reported and any other facets you feel comfortable in getting into. What did Larry Nichols tell you? What's in the affidavit? Uh, that I don't feel comfortable talking about, but this I can tell you what is already out there in the public record as a result of this lawsuit that led me uh, to go see Mr. Nichols. Sure. Uh, when you sue under the Freedom of Information Act, there are, for documents, government documents, there are two exemptions that are bulletproof that you cannot get around, that you will not get the documents. National security and well, well that's that's actually three. That's the other one. The other two are uh, if there's an ongoing criminal investigation, or if the government has promised anonymity or confidentiality to informants. I was fearful that the government would come back, the FBI would come back and say they had reopened the investigation, in which case I would have gotten nothing. Instead, they came back and told the federal judge that they had promised confidentiality to four informants and please not to turn over any documents. Well, the judge said he would allow them to black the names out, but to turn the documents over. And the documents show that the FBI's informants were robbing banks and armored cars with Tim McVeigh to get the money to construct a bomb, and that one of the four informants was actually the explosives instructor who taught him how to make the bomb. Now, to be specific here, this is the, the creating the history, the ledger, and this is what McVeigh said. They were staging fake robberies to create the illusion that it was an organic domestic group that was going to carry out the attacks. Classic black ops where they go out and engage in criminal activities as a smokescreen. That, that's basically what uh, some of the things that, that Nichols said. Sure. Classic classic black op, uh, gladio type op. But please continue. The, uh, as I said, the, the documents uh, are, it's not me making this up. The documents show that at least as, as recently as two days before the bombing, McVeigh actually called Elohim City asking for help. And this was reported by one of the informants. That four months before the, the bombing, another informant had not only reported the plan, but had said that they had actually scouted the target. Now, the Howell was one of the informants earlier, and she tried to warn them, and then they tried to arrest her and charge her, telling her to shut up. They did prosecute her, but she wasn't convicted. Yes. I understand. Please continue. And uh, so many of these things had... Uh, I would not have gotten where I am today on this, but for people have... And I don't know who's, who has done it, had leaked me copies of uh, records. And, and, uh, now, there's a lot of feds that don't like killing kids in a, in a daycare. They're not going to put up with it. And that made my case in front of the, the federal judge. As I had, unknown to the FBI, I had two copies, uh, two documents already about this operation. And so when I asked for the records, they came back, the FBI did, and reported to the judge that there were no such documents. And then I filed those two copies, 
And then the FBI came back and said that they were fake, and I had an affidavit from an FBI agent who said they were real. And with that, the judge lost all patience with the FBI. They had no credibility with him. And, and then worked. later, didn't it turn out that, that the similar documents and some of the same documents had been released before, but without some of the names blacked out, and then that proved they were real? Yes. Yes, they did. They found their way out through another source, apparently, which confirmed. They've never denied the documents or, or they now concede they're, and when they were ordered to produce them, to do a manual search, they came back and produced about uh, 100 pages of them. Where does it go from here? I mean, how, where does your suit go? How much danger is Nichols in? Quite honestly, I'm afraid. I, I, I was surprised he's still alive. Uh, not only is my brother dead, Guthrie dead. I had an eyewitness to my brother's murder, and he was found hanging in his cell, too. Uh, people have a habit of dying off in, in this case. They certainly do have a habit of dying off, as evidenced by the story released just a couple of days ago of yet another one of the heroic cops who went into the Alfred P. Murrah building that day to perform rescue was found dead in his cell, of course, from suicide. Probably the most famous case of someone in this Oklahoma City investigation winding up dead is that of Terrence Yakey. And if you go to my documentation list on CorbettReport.com, you can find a link to an article which talks about Terence Yakey, who was due to receive a Medal of Valor for his heroic efforts in rescuing numerous people from the buildings that day. And as one of the first cops on the scene, he saw something which did not mesh with the story that was being propounded in the mainstream media. He had reported his side of the story to his superiors and was told to back off the case. He continued with his investigations despite this order, and according to the story Who Killed Terry Yakey, this is what happened. Quote, the official report said suicide, and anyone who believes an ANFO bomb destroyed Murrah and the other surrounding buildings will believe this. According to the report, Terry slashed himself 11 times on both forearms before cutting his own throat twice near the jugular vein. Then apparently seeking even a more private place to die. He crawled another mile of rough terrain away from his car and climbed a fence before shooting himself in the head with a small-caliber revolver. What appeared to be rope burns on his neck, handcuff bruises to his wrists, and muddy grass embedded in his slash wounds strongly indicated that he might have had some help in traversing this final distance. The bullet's entrance wound was in the right temple above the eye, it went through the policeman's head and exited in the area of the left cheek near the bottom of the earlobe line. The trajectory was from a 40 to 45 degree angle above his head. There were no powder burns. No weapon was ever reported as found at the scene, but independent investigators speculated that had Yankee shot himself with standard police issue, a Glock 9mm or a three fifty seven Magnum, his head would have been far more destroyed than it apparently was. One of the last people Officer Yakey talked to was a friend who knew he was on a mission of private investigation. Terry had told him he was on his way to El Reno to check out something, but first he had to shake the FBI agents who were following him. He was traveling in his private automobile, and witnesses said later that the inside looked like someone had butchered a hog on the front seat. End quote. The story of Jesse Trenadu's brother Kenneth is very similar with signs of horrific torture and bruises up and down his body being ignored, and the death of Kenneth Trenadu likewise being ruled a suicide. 
But to get back to the information which Jesse Trenadu broke in early 2007, just a few days after the interview on the Alex Jones Show, this startling report came out, also from PrisonPlanet.com, March 2nd, 2007, under the headline, Former FBI Director Calls for New OKC Bombing Investigation. It reads in part, quote, Former FBI Terrorist Task Force Director Danny Colson has called for a new grand jury investigation into the Oklahoma City bombing, and for the first time names Andrea Strassmeyer as an agent in a documentary set to air Sunday, according to lawyer Jesse Trenadu. Trenadu, attorney for bombing conspirator Terry Nichols, last week obtained an astounding declaration from Nichols in which he fingered FBI agent Larry Potts as having directed McVeigh in carrying out the attack. In addition... Nichols' description of the bomb he helped McVeigh build does not match with official accounts of the device used in the attack, lending further credence to evidence that strongly suggests only bombs planted within the Alfred P. Murrah building, which were initially reported by TV news stations, could have caused the damage inflicted. Trenadu was interviewed for a BBC documentary on the Oklahoma City bombing, which will air this Sunday in the UK. The program has a different producer to the 9-11 hit piece show, which was part of the same series and is expected to present hard-hitting evidence of a cover-up. After the Alex Jones show broke the story yesterday, the BBC itself released a detailed article on their website focusing on Colson's revelations. The FBI man in charge of collecting evidence from the government building destroyed by the Oklahoma bomb has called for the case to be reopened. Former Deputy Assistant Director Danny Colson has told the BBC program The Conspiracy Files that he questions whether everyone involved was caught. Mr. Colson said a grand federal jury is now needed to find out what really happened. We have victims here, and we have victims' families, and we don't even know the answers. And the answer is frankly for a federal grand jury. Colson has a very interesting connection to the bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah building himself, leading many to allege that he was part of the conspiracy. According to reports, Colson checked into an Oklahoma City hotel the night before the April 19, 1995 bombing, despite claims at the time that he was in Texas on the morning of the attack. Receipts from the Embassy Suites Hotel show Colson checked in nine hours before the bombing. Evidence of Colson's clandestine trip fits squarely with a substantial body of details found in hundreds of pages of other official documents, obtained revealing weeks of planning by an elite corps of drug and counterterrorism experts who were closely monitoring members of various far-right groups they considered religious extremists and threats to the safety and security of the nation, reported the McCurtain Daily Gazette. End quote. Certainly this flood of information in February, March, and April of 2007 must have led somewhere to some startling new understanding of the Oklahoma City bombing. Sadly, this is not the case. As usual, when such astounding revelations come to light in the controlled corporate media, they are immediately forgotten. And the media's silence on the issue helps ensure that the story will go away. The fact that it's now been over a year since these revelations, and no further details have emerged about this case in the controlled corporate media, is of course extremely disheartening. But it can be reversed. It's up to the people of the United States to make this an issue with their elected representatives and to bring this issue into the purview of the controlled corporate media. And it's for the citizens of the globe to educate their sleeping American brethren about the truth of the Oklahoma City bombing in order to start a revolution in the mind 
a revolution in understanding of what happened that day. One of the most significant pieces of evidence that could possibly be brought to bear in this case is the surveillance cameras, at least a dozen of which recorded exactly what happened in the moments leading up to the blast. It has been verified in the controlled corporate media that these surveillance camera tapes exist, and they are being held back by the FBI. Let's turn back to 9-11 Road to Tyranny for more information about the surveillance cameras. Well, Kevin, it's a question we've all been asking. We've been asking that question since we first broke the story that surveillance cameras aimed at the federal building could have captured all those involved on tape. Now, sources have confirmed those tapes exist and that they show more than one bomber. The FBI also confirmed those tapes exist when they refused to release them, claiming the video is part of a criminal investigation. And now, for the first time, we get an on-the-record response from the head of the Dallas office, ATF. We learned that videotape could be unveiled as part of the prosecution's case. No officials, will, no officials will discuss specifically what's on the video, but we have been able to recreate some of what may have been captured by downtown surveillance cameras through the eyes of the witnesses. Now, you're looking at a computer recreation of the final movements of the Ryder truck according to the people who crossed its path at 5th and Harvey, moments before the explosion. Tonight at 10, the witnesses will detail their memories of how they believe the suspects carried out the crime and made their getaway. Now, all these accounts share a common and unsettling similarity. The witnesses say they saw several accomplices, including the infamous John Doe number 2. ATF officials tell us the elusive John Doe is still part of this case, but will not comment any further. However, they did tell us that there's a lot about this case we don't know yet. Information you can't find in the indictments against Timothy McVeigh, Terry Nichols, and Michael Fortier. It was just hours after the bombing when the news channel first told you about the possibility that surveillance cameras may have captured the explosion and the killers on tape. Our sources and sources for the L.A. Times describe what's actually on those tapes. The information shows some huge surprises. The biggest, that it may have been John Doe number 2, not Timothy McVeigh, who detonated the bomb. Brad Edwards has the latest on the investigation in this exclusive News Channel report. Our new information comes directly from a source that has seen parts of those surveillance tapes. It also comes from reports now in the Los Angeles Times. But perhaps the biggest surprise is contained in the News Channel's own information. Timothy McVeigh was not the last person to leave the Ryder truck. In fact, another man sat inside the cab of the truck after McVeigh got out. We believe that man is John Doe number 2, a man who, for all we know, is still on the loose, leaving open a vital question. Was it John Doe number 2 who actually set off the bomb, not Timothy McVeigh, as we've all been led to believe? News Channel 4 has for weeks been demanding copies of the surveillance tapes from the FBI. The federal government so far is dragging its feet. But many people in the investigation have seen the tapes, and now so has a source willing to describe to the News Channel what the tapes show. The L.A. Times report shows there was a surveillance camera near the corner of 5th and Harvey and another near the corner of 5th and Robinson. Federal investigators recreated the time sequence leading up to the bombing by matching the video and still photos from the surveillance cameras. Since we can't show you the tape ourselves, we're reenacting what our source says he saw on those tapes. As witnesses told the news channel before, the tapes show the Ryder truck parked in front of the Murrah building where we now know the blast went off. As witnesses also told us, the tapes show two men sitting inside the Ryder truck. A man strongly resembling Timothy McVeigh gets out of the driver's side, steps down. He then appears to have dropped something on the step up into the truck. 
He bends down and appears to pick something up off the step. Then he turns and walks directly across 5th Street toward the Journal Record Building. All this time, John Doe number 2 is still inside the Ryder Truck's cab, sitting on the passenger side. Time passes. The surveillance tape is time-lapse photography. Without knowing exactly the time interval between shots, our source can't be sure how long John Doe number 2 sat in that cab. What was he doing all that time? Then the tape shows John Doe number 2 getting out of the passenger side of the Ryder truck. Again, the tape shows that a bombing witness accurately described what happened next to News Channel 4. I was standing in the building, and uh, I was looked out the window, and I seen uh, a Doe's truck, and I seen a man get out of the Doe's truck. Another camera shooting from another angle clearly shows the actual explosion that destroyed the federal building and killed 169 people. So what does the mysterious John Doe number two look like in the tapes? The man who stayed inside the Ryder truck, possibly triggering the bomb? Well, his features are obscured by a baseball cap in the portion of tape seen by our source. The same kind of cap shown in the composite drawing first released of John Doe number two. The cap was a sports cap, flame style. The man himself was taller than the man resembling McVeigh and much thicker in build. He appears to have a dark or olive complexion. Our source saw only a few minutes of tape. He didn't see all of the almost 20 minutes of surveillance tapes that reportedly were distributed to FBI agents around the country to help in their investigation. But they do show enough to raise some crucial questions. Who actually set off the bomb? What was John Doe number 2 doing in the cab of the truck after the McVeigh lookalike got out? And how did John Doe number two get away from the Murrah building? Uh, my understanding is there was a video of McVeigh getting out of the Ryder truck, jumping into this other pickup with John Doe number two. Uh, well, where's that video? Are we ever going to get to see it? Do you realize what you've just seen, America? The government had multiple surveillance camera tapes. In fact, when it finally came out in court, when the federal government declared in 2001 that they wouldn't release the videotapes because of national security implications, that there were actually 12 surveillance camera tapes that had had these different Islamic individuals, these Arabic men with McVeigh and others, as well as the BATF uh, hiding out right down the street, uh, preparing to pounce on the operation and declare themselves the heroes, the saviors, the victims. Think about it. Now in 2001 and right into 2002, the federal government claims national security and refuses to release 12-plus surveillance camera tapes. What are they hiding? And the feds never tried to use it in court. I mean, if they had McVeigh pulling up alone and bombing the building and it was just a truck bomb, why not use the actual surveillance camera tapes to do it? But they didn't do that. You have to ask yourselves why. What's on that tape? Well, after you've seen all this evidence, it's clear. Federal involvement. Ratcheting up the police state right here in America. Here, ratcheting up the police state is not an exaggeration. The Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996 was passed in the wake of the bombing. This legislation, which was passed largely due to the hysteria caused by the Oklahoma City bombing, had a significant impact on the existing habeas corpus laws in the United States. It was conveniently all ready to go and ready already drafted just one week after the bombing took place, exactly like the Patriot Act, which was ready to go and put forward to be voted on 
in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, and of course the specific timing of that vote was, again, highly dubious, coming in the wake of the anthrax attacks, which we've talked about in a previous episode of the Corbett Report. Conveniently enough for the controlled corporate media, the Oklahoma City bombing also gave them a chance to talk about McVeigh's history and his association with crazed right-wing militia groups who believed that there was a New World Order conspiracy to bring in global government and erode American freedom and sovereignty. The New York Times, for instance, wrote an overview entitled Terror in Oklahoma, The Overview, Stymied Officials Review Approach in Bombing Case, on May 4, 1995. That report reads in part, quote, Federal agents who searched Miss McVeigh's truck and a house she was visiting in Pensacola, Florida, on April 23rd, four days after the bombing, found literature circulated by the most violent and virulently anti-Semitic paramilitary groups. Papers filed in federal court in Pensacola on Tuesday listed four copies of You May Not Have a Country After 1995, as well as other pamphlets with titles like Saving America and Operation Vampire Killer 2000, a recruiting manual for police against the New World Order written by Jack McClam, a retired Phoenix police officer. Stephen Gardner, research director for the Coalition for Human Dignity in Portland, Oregon, said Mr. McClam warned 300 supporters that on September 10, 1994, at the Seattle Center Exposition Hall of a conspiracy to enslave the American people in a diabolical New World Order. He asked them to help recruit law enforcement officers and soldiers into a movement to prepare for the coming storm and encourage the formation of citizen militias. End quote. So in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing, people who were concerned about American sovereignty and people who wanted to defend the Constitution were suddenly terrorists. And the implications of that came to light in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, which further demonized anyone who thinks that the ideals enshrined in the Constitution are important and worth protecting. And now we see, of course, the media trying to proclaim that blonde-haired, blue-eyed Al-Qaeda are everywhere, and thus we need a total police state in order to protect us from these evil terrorists. There's too much to possibly go into in just one podcast episode about this massive subject, but some of the information which I suggest you look up for yourself and which you can find in my documentation list on CorbettReport.com include some excellent li- links to WhatReallyHappened.com, which has a picture of a rider truck which was taken over Camp Gruber Braggs in Oklahoma in early April of 1995. That is a military base. Why the military had a rider truck parked at one of their camps just weeks before the bombing is perhaps a little bit suspicious. At whatreallyhappened.com, you can also read some of the original documents pertaining to the case, including sworn affidavits, press releases, command memos, daily logs, situation reports, and other documents which show that there is something being covered up in the Oklahoma City bombing. But perhaps it's time once again to reflect on what this is really all about. This report comes from CBS News, April 19, 2008. On terror anniversary, time again to mourn. This report reads in part, quote, It was Friday, April 25, 1997. McVeigh was on trial in federal court in Denver, the venue for the trials having been changed from Oklahoma City for obvious and legitimate reasons. It was in the afternoon, shortly before the end of what had already been a long and emotional week. 
a woman named Helena Garrett was shown to the witness stand. Along with many other small children, her 16-month-old son, Tevin, had been killed by McVeigh's bomb. Here is her account, as contemporaneously reported by the legendary Joe Thomas of the New York Times. Mrs. Garrett herself took the stand next. She told the jury of watching rescue workers bringing out children who were dead and dying as she looked for her young son, Tevin, 16 months. One was Colton Smith, too, who was laid on a bench by her knees and who was a friend of Tevin. He was bleeding from his mouth, Mrs. Garrett said, sobbing. I didn't leave Colton. They had some white sheets, Mrs. Garrett said, and rescue workers were wrapping babies in them, putting them on the ground. Please don't lay our babies on the glass, she remembered, begging them. Please don't lay our babies on the glass. I didn't realize they were already dead. A man swept the glass for me. Rescue workers did not find Tevin until Saturday, April 22nd, three days after the bombing. His mother next saw him at the funeral parlor. All I could see were his feet and hands, she said. I kissed his feet and legs. I couldn't go up higher. End quote. This is not a game. This is not a joke. This is very real. People died on that day. And if you don't see the importance of bringing up these questions, then I dare you to go to Mrs. Garrett, look in her face, and tell her you don't care what happened to her son. And if you don't think that other people think that this is a game, then I dare you to go and look at The Final Jihad by Martin Keating, which was written two years before the Oklahoma City bombing and in which a Tom McVeigh bombs the Oklahoma City Federal Building. Oh, and the dedication on that book? It's to a group called the Knights of the Secret Circle. But again, Martin Keating isn't someone that we should be looking into. That's definitely just a coincidence. Oh, and another coincidence about Martin Keating? His brother, Frank Keating, was the governor of Oklahoma. Again, nothing worth looking into. If you think this is important, do your own research and get the word out to others. I am your host, James Corbett. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the Corbett Report. Join me again next week for another episode. Our enemies are innovative and resourceful. And so are we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people, and neither do we. I want to make it clear to people that, you know, the idea of putting subliminal messages into ads is, is ridiculous. Conspiracy theories abound in uh, American politics. I don't think we need to be subliminal about the differences between our views on drugs. What is it saying is more... In one small country, it is a big idea, a new world order, where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind, peace and security, freedom and the rule of law. Out of these troubled times, our fifth object, a new world order, can emerge. Now we can see a new world coming into view. A world in which there is a very real prospect of a new world order. The new world order. New world order. You know, the American people should suspect that this administration will do what is necessary to win the war on terror. It's one thing to have justice, it's another thing to go overboard with justice. And so, in my state of the my state of the union, our state, my speech to the nation, whatever you want to call it.
of alternative views and healing, all designed with one aim, to hypnotize human consciousness and disconnect it through mind and body from its infinite potential and connection to the earth. And may God bless the United States of America. In my line of work, you got to keep repeating things over and over and over again for the truth to sink in. you got to catapult the propaganda. It is a big idea. A new world order. Lies, 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 lies. Long live the Republic! 